we are going to jump in to the book of Ephesians. I'm going to have Julia come up and she will do our reading this morning. If you would, here at the crossing, we stand for the reading of God's Word and we will be in Ephesians chapter 2, starting in verse 1 through 10. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air. The Spirit is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, and made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved, and raised up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we give you thanks this morning for your word, for your church, and for your steadfast love in our lives. We pray this morning that the word would seep not into our minds only, but into the very deepest parts of our soul. And we pray for each other this morning. We pray for Becky, Lord, in her heart condition as she is still at the hospital. We pray for Miss Wilson as her ankle is broken. We pray that during this slowing down time in her incapacitation that she would receive great wisdom and knowledge from you. We pray for the students returning this week. We pray for the Souter family as they prepare to take on two new foster children. We pray for the Gardner family as they have made their way into Ecuador. Would you keep them safe? Would you build them up? And would you give them rest? We pray that, Lord, that you would help us this morning too. Would you make us more like you? This is our humble prayer. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Oh. So, uh, that's my mini-me. His name is Samuel. We call him Bear, and he's five years old. The other night, I was sitting at a kitchen table with a bunch of young college students, and we were eating ice cream and talking about how our summer has gone, getting ready to get ready for the new school year. Lindsay was in the bedroom putting the children to sleep. And she walked out of the room in the way, men, you know this way, where your wife is on the borderline of tears, and you're not quite sure if it's an emergency or an emotional situation. You don't know what's happening. She said, honey, can you come here? I thought, oh, the children have been too much. This is a disciplinary moment <laughs> is needed. I'm going to, you know, lay down the law. That wasn't it at all. Lindsay whispered in my ear with a trembling lip, I think your son might be ready to receive the Lord. Now I'm a pastor. This should be my bread and butter fastball. And I'll tell you what, I froze. With a trembling lip of my own, I walked to the top bunk in that darkened room. I held my son's hand. We asked questions of each other. I, I, I was making sure that he understood the gospel. There was a deep conviction in his heart. And all the while, in the back of my brain, I'm thinking, is he just emotional? Is this the spirit moving? So we prayed. But I couldn't go to sleep. 
After the college kids left at like midnight, I stayed down in my basement and it's three in the morning and my wheels are turning. What is the Christian standard for a five-year-old? What do I do as a parent first? Do I trust in the word of my son? What should I tell him to do? Now, I've had the opportunity to lead many people or bear witness to the Lord saving many people in my life, young people, and their question is inevitably somewhere near the same core. It goes something like this. What do I do now? And I'm quick with a scripture or pull out my calendar for some baptism service. I say, well, we have to get a Bible. You have to dress this way. You should come to church. You need to get into a life group. You pretty, you should really stop saying that word. I never stop at all to consider the premise of the question and if it's appropriate. What do I do? Let me tell you another story. Uh, This is a man who was raised in the early part of the 20th century under communist China. And this little man was a spiritual giant raised up by God to be one of the contemporary church's foremost effective evangelists in the world. His name is Watchman Nee. You may have heard of him. He was born early in 1903 and in 1972 in the summer of it, he died in prison where he had been for 20 years because he was a Christian. And during his time in 1957, his ministry is exploding. Millions of Chinese people and Taiwanese people are coming to know the Lord under his watch. And he writes a little book, maybe 50 pages, a book on the book of Ephesians. Not a commentary so much, more a uh, reflection upon the principles that Paul was trying to teach this church and ask his people to reflect on them the same. He said that the the letter to to the Ephesian church was actually a process of Christian maturity. He broke the book down into three major sections, to sit, to walk, and to stand. Of course, that was the title of the book, to sit, walk, and stand. He summarized Paul's letter by claiming that the Christian must first sit, then he may walk, and finally he will stand. This book sold multi-millions of copies worldwide. So why do I tell you a story about a five-year-old blonde boy and a dead Chinese author? Because I think that my propensity is the same as a young Christian who comes to me and says, what do I do? When my wheels are turning as a father, my default is to ask the very same thing. What do I do? My son, when he prayed that prayer and asked in his own way, what is next? I believe that this is a propensity not only in me, but it's in you as well. I see it all over this place. This default for action. No one cannot deny that these things are good. We need doers in the church. We need doers in this country. We need men and women who are working solidly to build and to do. But I submit to you that our Christian impulse 
is counterproductive when we begin with the I and the do. In fact, when we start immediately thinking, what do I do? We cut out the very essential work of Christ. If we rely on that impulse for our own Christian development, we will in fact hurt ourselves more than we would ever help ourselves. Watchman Nee obviously puts it much better than I do. He says this in Sit, Walk, Stand. The scripture has been teaching us all along that the first step of the Christian life isn't a step at all. He says later, the Christian is to firstly sit down and enjoy what Christ has done for us. Now listen here. Not for us to set out to attain something of Christ for ourselves. Our premise, our predisposition, our wiring is to do until we encounter the work of Christ. So this is the series we're beginning. A three, maybe four-part series where we will walk through the book of Ephesians, use, Ephesians pardon me, using Watchman Knees, Sit, Walk, Stand as kind of our compass. But our goal here isn't to learn about what Watchman Knee has to say. Our goal here is to gardener the principles that the Apostle Paul was pushing forward to the early church because I tell you, they are just as potent today as they were then. So the first part of our series I get to do, and it is to sit or seated. It is the first part. I hope that the principles seep into your heart and you can apply them to your own life. Now, let's break down this series real quick. I just want to give you a lay of the land. This is something we don't do quite often at The Crossing. I want to make sure that we're all on the same page. So the first portion of the series is to sit. It's Ephesians 1 through the end of chapter 3. It's the first half of the letter. It talks about our position in Christ. Next week, Chad Barlow, you should, you should like fill the stands for that. Chad Barlow, my best friend, is coming to talk about the Christian walk, the practical Christian walk. And then Aaron Santini will take one, possibly two weeks to go just through Ephesians 6, 10 through the end of the chapter and talk about our defense against the enemy, our spiritual defense, which is, of course, to stand. So today, my hope, as we discuss being seated in Christ or our position, my aim is to convince you and to encourage you. I hope to convince you that if you are believing something of yourself, that there is still work to be done in you for you to have good standing with God. I hope to convince you otherwise. My hope is to convince you that unless you try to do things that will better your position in Christ, if you try to do things that will better put your position in Christ, I hope you will walk away thoroughly convinced that there is nothing left to do for it's already been done. And maybe you're a mature Christian in here and this is not a new idea for you. You are squarely seated in Christ. He is your identity. Then my job here today is to encourage you more mature believers, older believers, encourage you that this is not a fact that should live between your ears, but that maybe this reality has a way to seep into your spirit in such a way that you live a life of assurance and confidence. My job today is to cheer you on, not just to have the right Bible answers, 
but to have the right heart posture. So, let's begin quickly with a background to Ephesians. Just, just real fast. Paul is an apostle. He is writing to a group of churches in a, a region with this cardinal city called Ephesus in the middle of it. This letter would have gone to many churches. Now, Ephesus is a large, wealthy, highly academic um, city. And they are having some success. People are coming to know the Lord. The Spirit is moving. And they're facing persecution of one time or another. He writes a letter to help this church understand a revelation that he has had from the Lord. The revelation that we see is what he would identify as a mysterious message. That's what he says, is that there's been a mystery made known to me about Christ. He later goes on, not just in my words, but in Ephesians. Is that too small for you? I think you can see it. Ephesians 1, verses 8 to 10. I'll read it for you here. He says, in wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will. There it is. That's what the letter is about. According to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ. Verse 10, as a plan for the fullness of time to unite things in him, things in heaven and things on the earth. But that's not the only time we see that. Actually, there's another one. He says that the mystery would be made known by revelation. This is Ephesians 3, verse 3. He says, I've written briefly about this, but now I want to tell you what it is. And in Ephesians chapter 3, verse 4, he says, when you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ. And finally, we get to the center of the cinnamon roll in Ephesians chapter 3, verse 6. You should underline this in your Bible. When you're asking what is the, the letter of the, uh, to the Ephesians about Paul's central thrust, it is found here in the, the center of this letter. He says this in chapter 3, verse 6. This mystery is that, he's about to tell you, the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the same promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Our fellow heirs. This is not revolutionary to us. <laughs> Many of you are like, I thought it was going to be cooler than that. But to a first century Jew who is trying to seek after their God, Yahweh, to hear another Jew say, you don't have to be a Jew to get in, is unheard of. It is a revelation to the fullest extent. It is an unveiling of a truth that had not been seen in any generation before. The Jews and the Gentiles at that time would have immediately said, wait, what? Maybe that's just a Pueblo term. Wait, what? I had a kind of a crazy week. Uh, one of the things that happened, uh, I, I had to send my car into the mechanic. I was at a store, it broke down, I got it towed to a friend of mine, an hour later he called me and he said, hey, I have some news for you, a revelation. I said, what's up? He said, you need to buy a new car. What did I say? Wait, what? He had a truth given to me that was so shocking, so unexpected, I had put a crack in my engine block and I don't have a nice car, and so that was the end of that, that he then had to describe or fill out this revelation that he gave to me with more detail. Here's what went on. Here's what happened. Here's what it'll cost. Here are your options. And here's what you need to do next. 
This is exactly what Paul is doing here in the book to the Ephesians. This revelation has massive implications for the church at the time. But here's my submission to you. They haven't lessened their punch today. There is a reality, a functionality of what occurs when God saves a person. That if not understood, your Christian life, listen church, cannot be realized. The Bible sets out clearly how salvation works. How to grow as a Christian. And if you say the prayer like Samuel did on the top bunk of your bunk bed in a darkened room and do nothing more, you will never grow. This is, the implications for this are massively important. So I want to explain what these implications are to sit with three points. I want to answer three questions, if you will, okay? The, the first question, of course, is what, who is seated? The second question is where are we seated? And the third question is when are we seated? Three questions. We're going to answer them and hopefully this will fill out this element of our Christian development. So, point number one, who is seated? Ephesians 1, 18-20. You want to turn there in your Bible. I'll read it for you now. That you may know the hope which He has called you. This is Paul speaking in a prayer. What are the riches of His glorious inheritance in the saints? Verse 19. And what is the immeasurable greatness of His power towards us who believe according to the working of His great might? Verse 20. That He worked in Christ when He raised Him from the dead and seated Him at His right hand. Who is seated? Jesus is. Paul is praying for wisdom and insight to be given to the church. He's asking that they would understand at a deeper level what their relationship with their king and their God is. And where does he start? He starts with, it's done. Hebrews 3.1 says that when the Lord finished His work on the cross, He sat upon the throne in the, right hand, in the throne room on the right hand of the Lord and made the world His footstool. He was in majesty on high, it says. To sit down is a literary device meaning the work is done. Many of you guys have had a hard day, maybe mowing the lawn or do something like that. And when your day is finished, you don't just say, I want to stand in the middle of the yard. You want to find a lawn chair. What Jesus did with his life and his death and his resurrection was potent enough to satisfy God's breath, valuable enough to provide salvation for all those who are saved, and perfect enough to never need it doing again. Here's what I'm saying. There are people out there that say, I saw Jesus. He came back. No, he didn't. For what? The work's done. Well, I believe that he is in um, this, um, this way where he has to continue this work of salvation. That's saying that what he did on the cross didn't get it all done. You're putting him back up there again. It's a heresy and it's not true. 
Could you imagine finishing your dinner, something I'm quite fond of doing, quite actually, and your plate is empty, and yet you just continued making this eating motion with your fork on an empty plate? You're full, you're satisfied, the plate is empty, and you keep moving your fork. It would be illogical, maybe humorous, but it definitely isn't effective. What do you do with the fork when your plate is clear? You sit it down because the work is done. He is sitting on the throne because there's nothing left to do. So I pose a question to you all. Why do we start with what do I do when it's already done? I appreciate the man who chases after holiness, who, who has maybe um, verses in James rattling around in his head saying that there is action, Beck, but we need to be men of action. There is stuff to do. Yes, I completely agree, but you better sit first. And heaven forbid, men, listen to me, heaven forbid if you leave the restful place in Christ to go put matters in your own hands and walk away from the finished work of Christ. Because it's a affront to him and an ineffective work for the church and for you. Some of you might say, well, that might be good for Jesus. Yeah, it's done. He did the work. That's great. But I'm an unfinished product. I still have work to do. Some of us in the Christian church today, the, 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 the reformed movement, Young, Restless, and Reformed, has brought about this idea of, of sanctification and the continual process of I'm not going to be perfect until heaven, and that is a true and good doctrine. But you know who else the Bible says is seated? You. If you will. Here, quickly, turn to Ephesians chapter 2, verse 4. You want to learn, look at this in your Bible. Don't trust me. You don't even know me. Why would you trust me? But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love which with he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. Verse 6. And raised us up with him and seated us with him. Notice the tense here. It's past tense. You're not going to be seated someday. In our experience, yes, that's true. But we are in the fullness of time according to a God who sees the beginning from the end and the end from the beginning, who defines truth by his very word. He says, if you are in Christ, you are seated with him. In other words, the work is done for you too. Why do we so quickly fall to our impulse of what must I do when it has already been done? The finished work of Christ was given to you. That's how this whole thing works. Ephesians 2.8 says, For by grace you have been saved through faith. It's not of your own doing. There's that word again. It's a gift of God, not a result of your works. No one should be able to boast because it is a gift. The one who believes that you have to work for your sanctification, I believe, listen church, is making two mistakes. Number one, you're trying to walk before you sit. Number two, you are believing that the work of salvation wasn't done for you. It is to be so pious about the level of your sin, so so enamored by it that what you think your sin is so bad that what Jesus did on the cross didn't get it all done. You have to add to it. 
something simple to repent of. This isn't from condemnation. This should be a convincing to you that the work has been done. The proof of which is complete in that death couldn't hold him down. You know how I know Jesus is who he said he was? Because we don't have a gravestone for him. We can't find him. And the proof is in the pudding. His life and work was so potent and paramount that death could not defy him. He is victorious even over the grave. And he says that those who declare Christ as victorious, he adopts as his children. This is Ephesians 1. Notice here, we're seated now as children. Ephesians 1, 4 through 5. He predestined us for adoption to himself as sons and daughters through Jesus Christ. In other words, we're a part of God's family. And as such, whatever happens to Christ is implicitly happening to us. Consider my car again. The car is registered in my name. I paid for it. I maintain it. I'm the only one who drives it. There's a lot of people who tend to ride in it. But I'm the only one. I, it, is, it is functionally my car. But when my car broke down, my wife and children were just as impacted because in a way, it is their car too. And when I, Lord willing, buy a new car... That car will be theirs too. Both in death and in resurrection do we experience in the um, dismay and glory of Christ if we are adopted as his own. So the victory that Christ has where he is seated, his work is done, implies too that the work is done for me. When I mow my lawn, no one in the family has to. It's mowed for them just the same. Point number two, when are we seated? This is Ephesians 1, 11 through 14. You want to turn there. He says, in him we've obtained an inheritance. Notice that word. Having been predestined, notice that, according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promise of the Holy Spirit. He is a guarantee of your inheritance. So we have three words here. Okay? Number one, we have inheritance. Number two, we have a predetermination or a predestination. And number three, we have a sealing of the Spirit. The first, when are we seated? We're seated for all of time in the future. We have an inheritance. The finished work of Christ will never deplenish. In other words, we never have to say, well, that was a good rest, but now there's more work to do. It was done once and for all. So forevermore, our inheritance is given to us and it will never run out, it never drains. Imagine, if you will, if you won the the mega millions, I saw it on the news, there's like $1.5 billion jackpot. If you won that, You can do whatever you want. And if you don't want to work, that's okay. Because you have $500 million. That's why. The inheritance that's given to us in the spiritual realm in Christ is so significant and so eternal. From now, forevermore, 
we are seated in the rest of Christ. But we are also seated forever past. Do you notice the predetermination, the word predestined? For He predestined us. In other words, when the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters of the deep, as it says in Genesis chapter 1, before creation had ever existed, God in His complete foreknowledge, in His absolute power, saw today back then. In other words, He knows who's in heaven before the thing even starts. And in the predetermination of Christ's absolute sovereignty and perfect power, we were not at risk of losing our lives when we were making bad decisions before we knew Christ. We weren't barely dodging bullets. Life is held in the hand of our Lord, and He gives and takes away as He chooses. In other words, as Calvin would say, you are utterly invincible until the day the Lord calls you home. No decision of man, no storm, no disease can thwart the will of God. Now, some of you might be like, I have some questions about that. We can answer those, but I want you to rest on this. Isn't there security in that much power? When you feel like your life was slipping through your hands and you could barely hold it up, and I just, oh, I just barely made it to Christianity. By the skin of my teeth, I almost messed the whole thing up. No, you didn't. The Lord knew before the whole thing began. But here's my favorite one. The Scripture says that the sign of our salvation is the seal of the Holy Spirit. It's our guarantee of our inheritance. We are seated right now in the midst of your sin and toil, with your frustrations, with your blessings, with the things you've done well or a good week or a bad week, it doesn't matter. Because the Christian who has the seal of the Holy Spirit, the picture here is like a signet ring, right? I don't have any authority. And then I put the ring on and I have the authority of the king. It is, this is, his seal is my authority. This isn't a ring you put on your finger. This is a ring you put on your heart. In other words, the very life of Christ comes and indwells in you and brings conviction of sin, brings transformation in your life, brings the possibility for the first time in your life to be freed from sin and delivered. This experience is a constant reminder that Christ has finished the work and paid it all. It's an envelope that cannot be broken. It cannot leave you. It cannot depart from you. In fact, the, Christian, or the Scripture says in Ephesians that when you are sinning, the Holy Spirit is grieved. you know why? Because He's a witness that can't leave. The seal of your Spirit, if you are a Christian and have named Christ as Lord and have received the Holy Spirit, is given to every Christian. No one who's a Christian doesn't have one. Is the sign that you are seated. The work is done for you right now. No church membership necessary. No Bible study requirement. These things are good and helpful, but they are not indicative of who we are in Christ. Finally, number three. Maybe you could say it like this. I want to give you this one passage here. This is from John 14. As another credible witness to to the seal of the Holy Spirit. 14 verse 16, and I will ask the Father and He will give you an advocate, this is Jesus speaking, to help you and be with you forever. Forever. 
the spirit of truth, he says. The the world cannot accept him because it neither sees him nor knows him. But you know him for he lives with and in you and will be in you. And I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Jesus says, when I leave, I'm giving you a guarantee and it's the spirit. But if you read in John 14, you read something kind of interesting. I want you to notice this. Uh, It's not up on the screen. Maybe you could turn to it. It says in verse 19, it says, before long, the world will not see me anymore, but you will see me because I live in you. Okay. And on that day, I w- you will realize that I'm the father and that you are in me. Well, wait a minute. It's one thing, right, to understand, church, that when I pray the prayer, Jesus enters my heart, the receiving of the Holy Spirit. But this is a new phenomenon that when it says that we are actually in him. Jesus said that you are in me. We know well of the spirit in the Christian, but what is this business of being in Christ? Where are we seated? Well, I buried the lead there. We're seated in Christ. Go back to Ephesians chapter 1 verse 20. This is a study. This is to help you. 1, 20. Um, it says, He raised Him from the dead and seated Him, Jesus, at the right hand in the heavenly places. He raised Him and seated Him at the right hand. Now go down to Ephesians 2, 6, if you will. He raised Him, that's you and me, with Him and seated us with Him in the heavenly places. We are seated with Him in him. How did Jesus get to heaven? It's pretty easy. He was perfect. How did we get to heaven? Imagine you and I going on an airplane ride and I, you have a ticket and I don't. And the, the gatekeeper or the uh, gate agent is like, hey, where's your ticket? And I say to them, oh no, don't worry about it. I'm with them. Is that going to work well? That's sort of what we do with Christ though, right? Well, I know him. I've gone to Bible study. You can't believe it when someone said, when I say to somebody, I'm a pastor. They're like, oh, yeah, I went to Bible study as a kid. Good for you. <laughs> I know the Lord, as my friend Colt would say, yeah, but do you love him? Are you in relationship with him? The Bible describes God or Christ as a tower, if you will. And I believe that there's three elements of this in Christ that we deal with. Number one is we are pointers. You've known the pointers. That's Christ right there. Look at that tower. I'm a Christian. I go to church and I point at the tower. I can recognize them amongst all the other towers. And then the fiery arrows of the devil come and they're pelting you to death. And you're pointing at the tower saying, why is this happening to me? Because you're not in the tower. Going to church is not salvific. Having your mama raise you in a Bible community is not salvation the next group we have is the huggers imagine if you will the big tower and someone's hugging the tower i'm so close to jesus i just want to be so near you god that's like getting on the airplane and saying i'm I'm close with them you should let me on you haven't the ticket my friend and the third is to be in the strong tower not to take on the fiery arrows myself, not to think that it's sufficient to just be close to the tower, but to yield to my own condition and step behind the firm armor 
of Christ and His work on the cross. Because in that tower, there is nothing that can penetrate it. No fiery arrow, no disease, no issue. Now, you may be riddled with cancer in your body here and now. But when that body of yours withers away back into the dust of the earth, the truest part of who you are will remain forever. And I ask you, beloved, where is that thing located? Maybe you could say it like this. What's your position? Are you in Christ? I don't get into the throne room of God by saying, I know Jesus. I'm close to Jesus. There's no access, no room on that throne. When he opened himself up on the cross, any who believed in him, Romans tells us, we died with Jesus because we were in him spiritually. And when he rose from the dead, those who are in him spiritually, we resurrected too. You might say it like this, we were reborn with a new spirit, not the spirit that died with the flesh, but this spirit of Christ that dwells with us. What's your position? A hard worker? Identity is that you're a smart man. I'm a loyal mother. Is that your position or are you in Christ? Because anything other than that is a doing on your own accord. We need to be doers. We need to be people of action. We need to grow in the Lord. But we shouldn't walk away from Christ to do it. So here's my questions to you. When you're making decisions about the next months or years of your life, are you making them from a position that's in Christ? Quite simply, or in logic, or in your own experience, or in your own skill set. I encourage you, church, would you just submit to the restful position of in Christ? Or will you tarry more at some other spot? It's only from the seated position that we can truly walk like men and women of God. And boy, do we want to walk. Tune in next week. Because when the Christian is seated in their identity, they begin to do things that are in fact pleasing to God. They begin to walk in a manner that is worthy of the way they have been called. But we cannot leave our position in Christ in order to perform and attain something pleasing to the Lord. I'll close with this. I suppose when I was up there in the house in my basement in the early wee hours of the morning, thinking and toiling about what I needed to do as a father to help my son begin his journey in this conversion. I was, what I was doing was from a place of a father who was all by himself, trying to do it all alone, who had resolved himself to stay up later and get up earlier and do anything necessary to help his family. But in that position, I had forgot my position. I am not only a father, I am a son. A son called to rest. 
A son who is called not to do it himself because it has been done by his glorious king and righteous father for me. Not just in this moment of pain, but in all of history. Did my son truly give his life to the Lord? I don't know. But I've resolved this. I'm going to sit back, trust God, and watch what our good king does. Let's pray. Father, we are so blessed to be able to call you by that name. So honored to have a God who is not just a king on a throne, but a father who puts us in our lap. I pray, Lord, for the ears of the people here, if they have received that this is some cheap grace gospel, that all we have to do is say a prayer and it's all good. They have heard nothing of that kind. Lord, I pray that you would help their ears, that it was expensive what you had done. And it is expensive of us. It costs us our very life. But it begins with the restful seating of your work on the cross. So I pray now, Lord, that this would be the first step that isn't a step at all. Could we be a church body who finds their identity squarely in the finished work of your Son? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.